Good, af- uh, good morning. Almost feels like afternoon. Uh, Philippians, please. We want to return in the Word of God to Philippians. Let's read in the Word of God, starting at chapter 1 of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 27. <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation or your manner of living be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you, of salvation and that of God. For unto you it has been given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And we'll see why that is to be so in a few moments. In any case, we've already thought about the unity that the gospel of the Lord Jesus produces among believers. And he speaks of that again at the end of chapter 1, about their manner of living being as becomes the gospel. Now, there is probably nothing more adverse to the furtherance of the gospel, to its progress, than to live a life which denies the gospel we preach. And that's all too common, unfortunately. There have been many people who say the right things, have the right message verbally, but the way they conduct themselves in the workplace, or in business, or even in the home, belies their testimony. In other words, we can't preach a gospel of transformation, a gospel of being saved from sin, a gospel of being reconciled to God and having eternal life, which is a relationship with God, because after all, did not the Lord Jesus define eternal life this way in John 17, 3? He said, and this is life eternal, that they may worship, uh, that they may, sorry, I'm going to misquote that, so let me read it. That happens occasionally. Uh, The Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 3. The Word of God is too important for me to trip over the verse. So, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So the gospel we're preaching is not just some kind of dogma outside of ourselves, not even about a historical happening that is somehow something we intellectually believe, but it's about the Savior whom we know. Yes, the Savior who revealed himself in time and space. 
Yes, the Savior who came to the world in history. Yes, the one who died on the cross and rose again in history. But also the one who presently is to live within the believer by his spirit. And we are to live in a manner that adorns the gospel, that is in keeping with the gospel. May I say that obviously extends to Christian morality in our personal lives, but it also has to do with our corporate uh, reaction and relationship one to another. Because many times people will hear of the disunity among Christians and how Christians fight and fall out and fuss against one another, and they'll say, well, if that's Christianity, then I don't want any of that. And unfortunately, I've been to places before where people can point to churches in their community and they can say, look at those people. They claim to follow this Savior, Jesus Christ. They claim to preach the same gospel you do. And yet look at how they're always fighting and dividing. That's a very, very serious thing. And unfortunately, it happens all too commonly in the church and has happened commonly in history. But he wants to hear, rather, verse 27, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I believe when he says one spirit there, that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he says one mind, that, of course, extends to their attitude and their thought life. We're to be on the same page as believers, as led of his spirit in proclaiming this gospel of Christ. And notice its work, he describes it as striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, what does he mean, the faith of the gospel? Well, some people think that that means striving together so that people may believe the gospel. Because the words believe and faith are essentially synonymous in the New Testament. But oftentimes, when the word faith is predicated by this article, the, in the New Testament, we're talking about a body of doctrine. And that is what I believe he's saying here. That this is the doctrine of the Christian church. The doctrine that flows out of Christ's gospel is what we're to strive for. In other words, the gospel is more than just the knowledge of how to get saved, of how to go to heaven of how to escape hell. Really, every aspect of God's truth flows out of that gospel. Now, one can see that, for instance, in the first epistle to the Corinthians. Paul begins, and he says, you know, I hear there are divisions among you. And this is very serious. Some of you, it's sort of the cult of personality. You know, you're attracted to this personality, that personality, this gift and that gift. And you're sort of picking your favorite preacher. You're becoming sermon tasters who only want to go to the meeting when your favorite preacher is preaching. So some of you are saying, well, I have Paul. You know, they say, Paul, he's the one who's really going to give you the meat of the word. I mean, Paul, he's always got 18 points to his sermons, and they all begin with P, or maybe the letter Pi in Greek. Anyway, you know, he's just a great preacher, and he has such a knowledge of the Scripture, and he can bring the Old Testament in and to bear and show you the purposes of God. I'm of Paul. I'm a Pauline Christian. 
And others say, no, Paul, please, his speech is contemptible and his bodily presence is weak. He's kind of short and twisted looking. He limps and maybe his one leg shorter than the other. Probably has brown hair and wears glasses. Well, who, no, who knows? The, the ancient description, which was much after Paul's time, was that he was short and a little bit bent and stooped and that he was bald. And you know what they say, there are some heads that are perfect, and then the others he covered with hair, but never mind. In any case, Paul wasn't much to look at by all accounts. And people say, no, no, we don't want to bother with Paul. What we want is Peter, Cephas, as his Aramaic name is. I mean, Cephas is the man of action. Cephas can tell you what it was like to get out of the boat and start walking on the waves. He's the one who got up and preached that fiery message in Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people were saved. Peter, the man of action. Peter, a plain-spoken, tell-em-like-it-is kind of preacher. I'm a Petrine believer. I of Peter. And others say, no, Paul, Peter, please. I want Apollos. Apollos from that great university city of Alexandria. Apollos, who was such a great orator, he was sort of like Billy Graham and Ravi Zacharias rolled into one, you know. He could keep you on the edge of your seat with his preaching, and he could confound the enemies of the gospel. The enemies, the ones who preach the the false things, he could just get them all twisted up and tied up in knots, and, and he could really make you think through the gospel. I am an Apolline believer. I am of Apollos. And others say, well, you all lot are very unspiritual, you know. I'm of Christ. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the implication was, I'm of Christ and you aren't. We're the true church, you know. We're the true people of God. We're the true part of this local church. We're the real Christians, the ones that really belong to Christ. And Paul says, now, wait a minute. Remember the gospel that was preached. was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and a few others. Besides that, I don't remember who I baptized because I wasn't sent to keep track of that sort of thing. He says, I was sent not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, isn't that an interesting verse? Which tells us that there's a difference between the gospel and baptism. The proper order is believe the gospel and then be baptized. Now, don't misunderstand me. Baptism is a command of the Lord for believers. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus and are saved ought to be baptized. That's something the Lord wants us to do. But get your order straight. You're not baptized to become a Christian. You're baptized because you already are a Christian. It's your testimony to the world that you've died with Christ and that you've risen again to walk in newness of life with Him. That's been your spiritual experience. So Paul says, you know, I wasn't big on baptizing people lest anybody criticize me and say, Paul, you were making disciples after yourself. You wanted uh, disciples that were Pauline, people that would say, I have Paul. Paul says, no, no, no. Christ was crucified for you. And you were baptized in His name. Therefore, the identity of a believer 
ought to be in Christ and Christ alone. As I said, that's the foundation of our unity. Not only our unity at the local church level, but wherever I find a believer, regardless of what denomination or non-denomination they may pertain to, regardless of where they stand on Calvinism or Arminianism, regardless of what certain prophetic views they have, if they're really born again, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're my brother or sister in the Lord. We're part of one body. And we have to remember that identity, that we're saved in Christ, and whoever glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let there not be glory in man. And yet you look at the church around us today, and we're living in the age of the celebrity pastor. We're living in the age when people flock to men. We're living in the age when now the trend is to have multi-site churches. You know what multi-site churches are? You have the one sort of mother church, which usually gets pretty big, and because it's generally in the thousands and you're having trouble accommodating people, well, then you have another site where you'll have certain staff there and people can come and and sing and, and do their thing, and then they watch the man, whoever that may be, preach on a big screen TV, you know, sort of remotely. So it's just like being there. Now, what is that model saying? I mean, I don't doubt that many of these men, many of them preach the real gospel. And again, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. Many of them are sound on many points of doctrine. I've profited from the teaching of some of these men that I can think of. But what does that say about our identification? We're identifying in a man if we go that route, aren't we? We're saying the big thing is this preacher. This gift is so big that we as the church have to order where we gather, the physical places where we meet, around getting to see and hear this man. As if there's only one gift of teaching given to the church. And yet we have to remember the principle that our identity is in Christ. And where two or three are gathered together in his name, there is he in the midst. It's the Lord Jesus walking in the midst of the lampstands, Revelation 1 through 3 shows us. It's the Lord Jesus who's the head of the church. And we can't glory in any man, not even in Paul. And frankly, I have more respect for Paul than any preacher living today. But Paul would be the first to tell you, I'm nothing. Christ is everything. We all have to emulate that dear prophet of God, John the Baptist, who when he was told, you know, more people are going away from you, John, and they're following Jesus, John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And yet we're living in an age which loves to lift up men. God forbid that we should do that. God forbid that you should go away from the conference today impressed with me. I hope you don't. If you derive any benefit from the Word of God today, that's the Spirit of God doing it through a gift. And the Lord could use any brother He's given this gift to, to do that. He could speak through anybody He wants. 
Let us remember on one occasion, he spoke through a donkey. My good friend, Brother Randy Amos, said when he was a young man, he was uh, to go to the Longport home and to give a word in the gospel. And he was a bit nervous looking, apparently. And one older brother came by the room where he was kind of pacing. And he said, don't worry, brother. If God could speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through you. And that's the appropriate thing to keep in the back of your mind, you know. The vessel isn't anything. 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory and excellency may be of Christ. It's not about the dynamic gift. It's not about the charismatic preacher. If you get a second and third and fourth and and 1500th blessing for that matter, it's the God who gives every good and perfect gift who's giving you that blessing. Not the man. Not the woman either exercising her gift in her own sphere in the service that God has opened up for her. Whenever we start looking at one another and lifting each other up and making another person our object, we've gotten our eyes off the right mark. Because the gospel says there was one person hanging on the cross. Now, years ago, I spent some time in Spain helping some missionaries. And on one occasion, they took me to a place in northern Spain. And in Spain, it's very common to see crucifixes, you know, to see uh, a facsimile of the cross, a statue usually. And you'll see they have a facsimile, what they think the Lord looked like hanging on the cross. And the thing that set this statue apart was on one side of the cross, there was the Lord Jesus hanging. On the other side of the cross was Mary. Now, that has it all wrong, doesn't it? Because only the Lord Jesus went to the cross. The Lord Jesus would even say, I am alone, and yet I'm not alone. All forsook him and fled, you see. All of his followers, the closest they could get, would be to stand afar off and watch, as John did, and as Mary did, and as a few others did. Only the Lord could go to the cross. We sing it sometimes. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. So our thinking has to be Christocentric. And therefore, the meetings of the local church have to be Christ-centered. If we start focusing on the music, or we start focusing on the brother who's preaching, or we start focusing on any aspect of what people are doing to the exclusion of Christ, that is idolatry. And we must be very careful to avoid against that. Every doctrine of the Christian church flows out of this gospel. How you use your gifts. The Corinthians came behind in no gift, Paul said. But he said, here's how you need to use your gifts. You need to use them in love. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. The Spirit of God didn't give it primarily for weddings. That may shock you. But it was actually given in the context of gifts. It's between chapters 12 and 14 that talk about the giving of the gifts in chapter 12 and their right function in chapter 14. And in between is the right motivation. How are we to use our gifts? What's the right motivation? Love. Love for Christ primarily, but then love for our brothers and sisters that says, I want to edify them. I want to build them up. I'm not using my gift so that I'm lifted up. Not using my gifts so people say, oh, look at him, look at her. Look at how wonderful, how spiritual they are. But they look at the gift and they see the giver of the gift, Christ. And they thank God 
for the gifts He's given to the church that are being used in their life to get them closer to the Lord, to make them more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the importance of the gifts. It's not about performance. It's certainly not about entertainment. It's about making people more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that principle flows out of the Gospel itself. What about men's and women's roles? Are we free to do whatever we want in the church on that? No. That flows out of the Gospel too. Because the very fact that God makes a distinction in how men and women are to publicly serve in His church is not based on any kind of chauvinism or because Paul was feeling particularly cranky or he was basically misogynistic at heart. No, he takes it right back to creation. And he says there's an order here. That the man was given authority under God. Now the man isn't an authority unto himself. The man is responsible to Christ. He has a head who is Christ. Christ is that head. That's what the Gospel says, doesn't it? If you come to the Lord Jesus and bow to the knee for Him for salvation, you're not saying, Lord, save me from my sins, but I don't really care to follow You or obey You. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel says you're going to come to the Lord Jesus and you're going to be made a new creation in Him. And now He's your Lord and your head. And He tells you what to do. What He's always been meant to be toward men from the beginning of creation, He's meant to be their head. And so men are to function as leaders under their head. Not ruling as tyrants or dictators, but leading like the Lord Jesus led in love. And frankly, there's a lot of men that are are AWOL today. A lot of men that aren't leading. A lot of men that aren't taking their place in God's church. A lot of men that aren't spending the time in the Word. A lot of men that are giving themselves to their careers and to their hobbies and to any other thing and not giving themselves to the Lord their head. So then we have the women. Well, the women have the head as well, which is man. Not because there's any intrinsic deficiency in woman. Philosophers would speak of ontology. That means in their being, there's no difference between men and women in their worth before God, nor in their position before God in salvation. Read Galatians 3. There's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. But that doesn't deny the fact that the New Testament recognizes that in other areas, there were very definitely distinctions between slaves and free, and between Jews and Gentiles, and between men and women. And women are to submit. Again, to submit, not because the man is anything in and of himself, but because this is the order God has established. And if we have any problem with that, let us remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that the Lord Jesus himself has a head. His head is God the Father. The Son, though He is equal, has put Himself under His Father's authority. And when He came to this earth, He made that clear. That the works He was doing and the words He was speaking were not His own, but they were the Father's. And that He did all things which pleased Him. 
So don't you see what I'm getting at here is everything we do as Christians, whether it's personal or whether it's corporate, it all flows out of the gospel. It all flows out of who Christ is. So when we strive together for the faith of the gospel, we need to be directed toward Christ. We need to be Christ-centered, Christocentric, if you please. And that's what he's going to say to them. To you, it's been given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Now, if I said to you this morning, guess what? To you, it's been given. You're going to get to go to Bush Gardens for free. You're going to get to ride on every ride. You say, that's wonderful. If I say to you, to you, it's been given to have dental surgery today. Would that have the same force to you? You'd say, Keith, you're an idiot. Why do you start a sentence like that as if this is a privilege when nobody wants dental surgery? You know, we don't want painful things. And yet he says here in verse 29, for you it's been given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You're given this mighty privilege to suffer for the Lord. You're suffering some persecution. What a privilege, Paul says. You say, obviously, that torture had gotten to him in prison. No, this was the normal attitude of the early church. When they beat Peter and John, they departed from the council, and Acts tells us very clearly, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the Lord. Oh, I tell you, what must it be to be able in this life to suffer something for the Lord Jesus? Is there anything we can suffer for him that begins to approach what he suffered for us? I don't think so. And what's more, in the midst of this suffering, which was in Paul, Paul wasn't speaking theoretically. He says, verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. But in the next breath, he starts to talk about the resources they have in God. He says, if therefore there be any consolation in Christ. Now, don't let the word if throw you as if he's in doubt about it, as if it's somehow conditional. It has the force here of since. It's rather like saying, well, if they're serving lunch here today at the conference, why don't we stay and eat it? You know, you're saying to somebody, you know right well that they've already announced there's going to be lunch, and you trust the veracity of the chairman and you believe what he said. So you say, well, since they're serving lunch, why don't we stay for it? It's the same way he's using the language here. And the same way he uses it, incidentally, in Colossians 3, when he says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. There's not any doubt that the believer has risen with Christ. That's the spiritual experience of every believer. If you've been born again, you have risen with Christ. That's what baptism says. But since that's true, we're to seek those things which are above. So here he says, I'll substitute the word since, so we get the sense well. Since there be, therefore, consolation in Christ, and since comfort of love. Now, those two words in the original language, consolation and comfort, are so close in meaning that our translators even have trouble with them. 
Because you can look across the board at solid English translations, and some of them will put consolation first and comfort second, and some of them will put comfort first and consolation second. So there are two meanings, uh, two words whose meanings dovetail very closely. And what he's saying here is that in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of identifying with a rejected Christ in a world that hates Him, there is consolation for you in Christ. The Lord can draw near to you in pain and give you the consolation you need. There is comfort of love. The love of God is the word here. It's the famous word agape. It's the comfort that flows from knowing that God loves us. That what happens to us is not accidental, but the sovereign God is directing our ways and permitting precisely what happens to us to happen. It's like our late brother William MacDonald once put it, nothing ever comes to the child of God without first passing through a filter of infinite love. You see, he controls what comes to us. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Now it goes on to tell us that the purpose is ultimately our glorification with Christ. So God is bent upon using every experience in this world to one greater goal of conforming us to Christ. You can picture God in that sense as the great celestial orthopedic surgeon. Now, orthopedic surgeons aren't nice people when they're at their profession. I don't say they might not be very nice outside of work. But inside of work, those guys are brutal. I have a good friend, and I've had a bit of orthopedic surgery in my life, and I'm always glad that I'm anesthetized before they set to work on me. Because I have a friend who, when he did his orthopedics rotation, he's a doctor, he said, this doctor said to me, he turned and said, get up on this table and hold down this guy's leg while I saw on him, you know? That's the kind of stuff that happens. And I wondered why I came out of anesthesia, why parts of my body hurt that weren't even operated on. But, you know, they're twisting you, they're bending you. You ever look at their tools? They got saws and chisels and power drills. It looks like you're in a carpentry place. You know, like Bob Vila is going to walk in with the, the apron on instead of a doctor. And those orthopedic guys are merciless because they'll go into your body and they think nothing of it. Scalpel, pshht. They just cut a big hole in you. Know, I shouldn't be talking like this before lunch, I guess. Uh, but anyway, you know, they cut you open mercilessly, and they'll cut through your flesh and through muscle and sinew and tissue and whatever, and they'll cut away all kinds of things in your body just to get at the part they want. And you know, there are some times when a bone, let's say you had a broken bone and it didn't heal right, they'll go in and re-break the bone. I mean, you know, you say, that's rough. If you saw that guy and you said, wait a minute, doesn't the Hippocratic Oath say do no harm? And you're hammering on that guy's arm or on his femur or whatever, and you're going to break that thing? How is that do no harm? And in a moment of time, you might think the doctor is actually going to kill the patient. The doctor is actually doing harm to the patient. But you know what? In the long run, I joke about them. But they do a lot of good. I wouldn't be walking around here without them, by the grace of God. In the Lord's mercy, we live in a time 
when the Lord has given certain people that kind of knowledge to be able to go in and fix things that are wrong with us. And to do that, they sometimes have to cause pain in the short run, that in the long run, you may be far better than you otherwise would have been without that short-lived pain. Now, God has the long view in mind, folks. He's not interested in how well you're going to prosper in 2012, as if 2012 was the be-all and end-all. But God is interested in making you to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to cut away and chisel away, and if need be, hammer away, at every bit of you that doesn't look like the Lord Jesus Christ. You can imagine Michelangelo hammering away at that slab of stone and chiseling away at it. And you might say, Michelangelo, you're spoiling a wonderful block of granite. And yet when he was finished, and there was the mighty David that the whole world knows, a masterpiece for many centuries now. Would anyone question how he hammered and chiseled? Well, I tell you, when we see the saints in glory, when we see the church, Ephesians 5, presented to himself without spot or blemish or any such thing, Is there going to be any pain, anything that was suffered in this life that we're going to say it wasn't worthwhile for the end result? No, the Lord knows what he's about, folks. And the beauty of it is that even as we go through it, and I know little of physical persecution. I know nothing of physical persecution, to be honest. I know a little of verbal persecution. But that hardly is in the same category of what many of our brothers and sisters in the world today face. But I tell you, when you go through persecution, and when you go through suffering generally, there is consolation in Christ, and there is comfort of love. You know that it's a loving God who's over all. You know He's controlling things. You know there's fellowship of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God Himself communes with you and shares with you the things of Christ. And you know there are bowels and mercies. Now, bowels in the Greek mind, just as we might use certain organs metaphorically today, like I could tell you, my wife has my heart, you know? What would I mean by that phrase? Well, I'm not meaning that she has this muscle in my chest cavity and she's pulled it out and she's watching it there pumping. No, that's not it at all. I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm saying I love my wife. It's my affections are upon her and upon no other woman in that way. And here, that's what he's saying. The bowels, the very deepest parts of a human, the things about you that are so painful that you can't articulate in words. The experiences that you couldn't begin to describe, even if you could somehow find the right language. You just couldn't paint a word picture of how it feels. He enters into the very deepest things and gives us resources that reach right down deep into the very core of our spiritual being and empower us for suffering and doing His will. And yet He recognizes the negative. He recognizes that it's possible that things can be done not in keeping with the resources we have in Christ. 
He wants them, verse 2, to fulfill his joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. It's the picture of agreement. It's what the psalmist spoke of when he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant is it for brethren to dwell together in unity. This wonderful experience of the believers being harmoniously united around Christ. It can happen and it does happen. I've been in places and fellowshiped with believers where naturally speaking, they had nothing in common one with another. I have some very good friends, in fact, in the Lord, that if we were not both Christians, I would never ever be friends with these guys. I mean, at least four or five of my friends are convicted felons. You know, many of my friends come out of backgrounds that are completely dissimilar to my background. And many of the opportunities we've had in life have been totally different. Now, people tend to congregate with those that are like them. Birds of a feather flock together. That's how it is in social things in the world. But you look at the church, and it's different, isn't it? And so you've got believers even here. This is just a little microcosm. We have dear believers here today who hail from the Caribbean. We have dear believers here today who might be of a Hispanic background. We have believers here today. I know we have some people of an Italian background in the house. We have even let in a few Pennsylvania Germans when people weren't looking. And people that are a hybrid of Pennsylvania German and Scottish. That's a a rare bird indeed, but there you are. Um, All different kinds of people. And if I polled you, probably all different educational levels. Uh, We have some Koreans here as well, I know. Uh, We have some people from Spain, that country that's near and dear to my heart. I mean, it's like the United Nations, isn't it? You look around, there are people that are tall. I hate you. I mean, I love you for the Lord's sake. Um, We have people that are thin. I envy you. We have people that are, well... They're challenged when it comes to thinness, let's say. You know, vertically challenged and horizontally challenged maybe as well. All different kinds of people. And yet, why are you here today? You're not here today because we're all trying to sell the same product or we're all rooting for the same sports team or we all come from the same university or we all have the same kind of job. None of that. We're here for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord alone, He can get by these things that men want to get by. You know, people really want to transcend racism. We want to build a world where there isn't racism. And yet racism keeps popping up all over the world, doesn't it? It's not just an American problem. It's in every country of the world. And the only thing I know that really conquers racism is when believers... Get the mind of Christ. When they start seeing each other the way Christ sees them. Where race now doesn't matter. Where what matters is the common life we share in Christ. You know, people want to solve class problems of how they're rich and poor. And there's wonderful things. I can think of an assembly I go to. And one of the things that's distinctive about it, after the Lord's Supper, two brothers always get up and they leave the building as we're singing the last hymn, and they go to a local prison and they preach the gospel. And one of the brothers is a multimillionaire, and the other brother struggles to make ends meet. I mean, he really doesn't have much of this world's goods. 
And here they are together in the same assembly, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What does that? Human philosophy can't do it. It's got to be the Lord working in our hearts and giving us his mind. Now, Paul recognizes that the problems can be there. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife. That's a word that the ancient Greeks often used in political contests where you'd be fighting for your party, for your group. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. And that's a very good literal translation in English of the Greek word there. Because many of the things we glory in in this life, many of the things that we boast, many of the things we think are worthwhile, from the standpoint of eternity, are really empty. I knew a veteran servant of God who was a pilot in the Second World War. And when you came into his study, he had a little frame up on the wall that had some medals for bravery from the war. And he had printed out from his computer a Greek word, and it just said on the bottom of the the frame, kenodoxia, which is the Greek word for vainglory. In other words, the brother was saying, yeah, this is part of my life, and You know, he was glad he had served, but at the end of the day, he wasn't resting in these accolades and medals he had gotten from men. He was resting in what he wanted to be before the Lord. And how many people strive today to be thought of as something, even in the local church, to be thought of as, you know, the head brother or the head sister or or the one who's really in charge in the meeting or whatever. He says, don't let it be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Now, he's not talking about morally and qualitatively in the sense that we make ludicrous statements, like we say, you know, well, Adolf Hitler, he was better than me. I mean, no, he wasn't. Not morally speaking, anyway. Not in how he lived. And it's not about saying, well, oh, this, this believer is better at all these things than I am. No, they may be better than, at you than, than some things. But he's saying that when you look at the believer, you want to count their value so much that you want to see them in, advantaged in the Lord, even to your detriment. That's what he begins to explain in the next verse, verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's not a license to be a busybody. It's saying you want to be involved in other people's lives and see them getting on with Christ. You want to get involved in others' lives, not to be intrusive, but to see them advantaged in the Lord, to see them prosper and do well. I mean, someone has described Christianity as a race to the bottom. Because after all, the Lord said that the greatest among us would be the servant. He said, I'm not I, your Lord and master, and yet I'm among you as he that serves. Or as he famously told us, and is it in the Gospel of Mark 10:45, I think, where he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's what he says here. Everyone look on the things of others. And Ironside had it right when he said the last verse in English of verse 4 sounds the keynote of the passage. It's others. That's what it's all about, others. Now, is that really possible? 
After all, our default setting as human beings is to think about self. So often we think about ourselves. Tom T. Hall, the country singer that my dad liked, used to have a line in one of his songs, women think about themselves when men folk aren't around. Well, with all deference to Mr. Hall, men do that too. (laughs) Whether women folk are around or not, (laughs) we find it so natural to think about ourselves. So natural to talk about ourselves. I read an interview in the New York Times Magazine this past week about the actor Samuel L. Jackson, who they say is the greatest grossing actor of his generation. He's made His films have made more money than any other particular actor. And they finally got around to interviewing his wife about page six, and she said, oh, you had a wonderful conversation with Sam? Of course you did. He was talking about himself. And I thought, you know, that's typical. That could describe me, too. Just ask me about myself. I I love to talk about me. It's one of my favorite subjects. That's how we are. We wake up thinking about ourselves, and we go through the day so often thinking about ourselves, and we can bring that kind of thought life to church if we're not careful. We come together to meet with other believers, and we're thinking, now what am I going to get out of this? What's anybody here doing for me? What church is going to meet my needs? And so forth. But he says, no, there's another way. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As the New American Standard has it, let this attitude be in you. In other words, it's a mindset, a way of thinking, an attitude of believers. And that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, how did the Lord Jesus think? Well, let's look at what he did. Verse 6. Who being in the form of God. Now that word form there emphasizes what he was in his essential nature. It's what the Lord actually is. And because it was an ongoing tense, he was in the form of God. The implication is that from all eternity... The one we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. He has always been God from all eternity. He's always been in the form of God. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now essentially what he's going to talk about here is a change of position. Not a change of ontos, a change of being, but a change of position. I emphasize that because when we get to the phrase in the next verse, he made himself of no reputation in verse 7, it literally is he emptied himself. And that has motivated some theologians to say all kinds of absurd and daft things about the Lord emptying himself of attributes of deity. Attributes are the things that make you what you are, essentially. And philosophically, it is an absurdity to say that you can empty yourself of what you are and yet continue to be. What's more, biblically, we don't have any evidence of that. You can look at the life of the Lord Jesus on earth. You can see his omnipotence displayed. You can see his omniscience displayed. You can even say, see his omnipresence displayed in the sense that he'll be standing there on earth, but he'll talk about the Son of Man who is in heaven who is in the Father's bosom. So the Lord Jesus had all the attributes of God, essentially. He was on a position of equality with God from all eternity. 
And yet he didn't esteem that position as something to be held on to at all costs. He wasn't snatching at that position and saying, no, I'm not leaving. Now, if we get any authority, we could be tempted to feel that way. If you're the CEO of the company, you don't particularly want to go down to the second floor and unstop a toilet in the employee lunchroom, you know? You say, we we have lower people in the company that do that sort of thing. I'm the CEO. I don't want to do that kind of thing. The Lord was there in glory, in light which no man can approach to. The Lord had seraphim crying out, holy, 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 night and day. The Lord had angels at his beck and call. What's more, the Lord Jesus, or God the Son, I should say, as he was then, was invulnerable to pain and suffering and unassailable by his enemies. Nobody could touch him. And yet the Lord Jesus said, I will go. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. So what did he empty himself of then? Well, the verse goes on to explain it. He made himself of no reputation, it says, by taking on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Now, it's the same word there for form when we read form of a servant that verse 6 had for being in the form of God. So the Lord didn't just come and pretend to be a servant. You know, sometimes you have these politicians that do photo ops. They're there for a groundbreaking at a school, you know. So they bring them out, and there they are in their three-piece suit, and they've got a hard hat on that somebody's handed them, and somebody hands them a shovel. Sometimes they're gold-plated, you know. And there the guy poses with the shovel. Now, that's hilarious, because I've seen people dig ditches before, and Normally, most of those politicians in the photo ops, they they look like they don't know which end of the shovel is which, you know? They don't look like it's their natural position. And I'm not exactly a great ditch digger, so I won't throw any stones. But that's acting like a servant, isn't it? That's pretending to be something you're not. When the Lord came to earth, he didn't pretend to be a servant. He actually took on him the form of a servant. The servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about in those great four servant songs in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52 and 53. He's the servant of the Lord who came to suffer and die ultimately. So his emptying himself was what Wesley spoke about in his great Christmas hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Or as one of the Greek scholars of the 19th century put it, he stripped himself of the outward insignia of glory. In other words, in contradistinction to the Renaissance artists and medieval ones as well, the Lord wasn't walking around glowing incandescently. He didn't have some kind of halo around his head. He looked like an ordinary man. Great is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16 says. God was manifest in the flesh. But being found in fashion as a man, verse 8 continues, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now the word unto there has the force of to the point of death. In other words, how obedient was the Lord Jesus? Did he say, well, I'll obey you in preaching sermons, Father. I'll obey you in healing people. 
I'll obey you in reaching out and touching the icky lepers. I'll obey you in raising the dead. But I'm not going to obey you in dying on the cross. Oh, that wasn't possible. Our Lord's obedience was such that even the death of the cross, not just the death where men tortured him and men humiliated him and men spat upon him, but the death of the cross meant that everything bad man did to him only paled in comparison to the Lord laying on him the iniquity of us all, to the holy God of the universe putting our sin on the Lord and him suffering for it for three dark hours on that cross. That's the level of his self-abasement. That's how low he could go. That's how far he would obey. To the uttermost, he would obey. Every particular of what the Father wanted him to do, every aspect of his will, even the most humiliating and most painful, the Lord Jesus would stoop to do. And why did he do that? Well, he did it for his father, first of all. But then the Bible unashamedly tells us he did it for us. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me he died, we sing. What a wonderful truth that is. Crucified, crucified, and nailed upon the tree with hands and feet and bleeding side for you, for me. That's how committed to enriching others, to lifting others up, to advantaging others the Lord Jesus was. He wasn't denying that others were sinners. That's the very reason he came to die. He wasn't denying that we were royally messed up. That's precisely why he came to this world. But he was saying... I love them, and I want to see them enriched. I want them to see, see them brought into the riches of my grace. And the Lord Jesus lived that way toward his fellow men and died that way. And he says that is the kind of mind we need to have, to die for one another. One of the second century Christians reported that one thing that the pagans watching the Christians would say They'd say, behold how they love one another. Behold how they die for one another. That's because they cultivated the mind of Christ. They said, Lord, by your spirit, let us think like you think. Let us view others the way you view them. Let us be willing to impoverish ourselves that others may be spiritually enriched. Let us do that all in grace, the grace that God bestowed on us the riches of His grace. It might say impossible. Only the Son of God could do it. Well, Paul would say in the same chapter, and I, if I be sacrificed, if I be poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am ready and willing rather. I'm willing to be spent, in other words, that your faith may grow and prosper. Well, Paul, you're an apostle. Well, I'll send to you Timothy, because I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, because all look on their own and not on the things of others. But Timothy, he's going to care for you and look out for you and make sure everything good you need spiritually you have as much as is in his power. 
Well, that's your lieutenant, Timothy, Paul. Ah, and then there's your hometown boy, Epaphroditus, Paul says, who has been so gripped by the mind of Christ that when he got sick, he didn't say, why aren't the Christians coming to visit me? Why don't they send me some candy or at least a bouquet? Why aren't they calling? Why aren't they sending cards? No, when he got sick, and he was sick, by the way, because he served so rigorously in the gospel that it broke his health. And when he got sick, he was only sorry that now this would be a cause of worrying you. Because he doesn't want to take up five minutes of your time in worrying for him. That's the mind of Christ that gets off of ourselves and thinks about others. It's like the old children's chorus we sometimes sing, Jesus and others and you. What a wonderful way to spell joy. J is for Jesus, for he is first place. O is for others you meet face to face. Y is for you, and whatever you do, put yourself last and spell joy. May God help us to do so. Father, we're thankful for thy word. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus, our great exemplar, the one who has left us an example, having suffered for us, that we should follow in his steps. We're thankful for the opportunity to suffer for him to any degree, and we pray that we do so boldly and drawing upon the resources we have by the Spirit of God. We pray that we love one another fervently and put others first. And Father, we think of the food we're about to have. We give thee thanks for it, for the hands that have provided it. We thank thee for this ministry of the pantry we've heard about. We pray bless that to the salvation of many souls. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.